0: Well, welcome, everybody, to the 2023 Vanguard Conversation Series. I'm Janet M. Harvey, CEO of Invite Change, and please join me in expressing a special thank you to our co-host and sponsor, Choice Magazine founder and publishing editor, Gary Schleifer. Yay.
1: Thank you very much. Recent issue, healthcare, coaching, read it, even if you're not in the industry.
0: It is a great issue. You did a fabulous job of curating the authors. I I have read every single article, really, really enjoyed this one. It's fun to take a a deep dive into a vertical industry that way. Um, hmm, Maybe that's an idea for future issues. Anyway. So what are we doing here at Vanguard? Each of the episodes this year, we've brought a different inspirational global visionary leader to join us and exploring a thorny problem they faced and how they navigated it. Part of what we're doing, and you see this in the instrument that we gave you, and I think it will be posted here in chat shortly. The tensions of presence method was something that I started to notice with leaders, that the thornier the problem, the deeper they needed to be in reflection. And I know deeper is kind of a tough word. What the heck does that mean behaviorally? So part of what we're doing here is maybe looking underneath a bit to say, what is this skill set of self-reflection about what's actually occurring Not what we think or what we assume or what we prefer or maybe historically have accepted as occurring, right? We all like shortcuts in business because time is money. And sometimes that backfires that we need to pull back for a little perspective and dig a little deeper into some of the reasons and the root causes that our bias has shown up and we're not really understanding the whole story, which goes to, boy, aren't we working in unprecedented times we are absolutely feeling disrupted every time we turn around and that's actually not a reason to go faster it's a reason to go a little slower and to spend some quality time and the emotional courage necessary to say i don't have all the answers i want to lean into the people who have been involved in this who might see it from a slightly different perspective and this is the beginning of collaboration which, yes, this is what we're talking about today, competition and collaboration. But before we go there, I want to turn it over to Gary, who will also share a few thoughts and introduce our global visionary leader for today.
1: Well, thank you, Janet. As we've mentioned, Vanguard is means many things, but to us, being at the forefront of ideas that are emerging so we can proactively disrupt our thinking. Remember that, proactively. I have a note up here, and it says be provocative and bold, and I'm going to add provocative. One of the easy ways to think about how we don't act or think that way is, a tradition of Thanksgiving, turkey and cranberry sauce. So those of you that know American traditions, that's one of them. So what's turkey without cranberry sauce? Well, our conversation focuses on our experience of life Today, rather than a theory, an outcome, a process, or a promotion to provide to buy anything, we invite you to transform your process of listening to getting something to giving yourself an opportunity to experiment and learn through practical application that is relevant to your life. My goodness, what can we say about Susie? So thank you for throwing tossing over to me because I was going to say Susie Pomerantz. Dear, dear friend, known for, I I don't know. What did we say the other day? At least 20 years. The co-creator of the Library of Professional Coaching. One of the very first master certified coaches in our profession. Oh my gosh. I don't know. I just get chills thinking about her. She's a dear friend. We do everything that we can together. She's on the editorial board of Choice Magazine. She's our strategic advisor. She is, what else? Hold on, there's one more. She's the writer of our sticky situations. She's one of the people that weighs in on the sticky situations in every issue of choice. What else would you like us to add, Susie?
2: That I'm Um, just honored and excited to be invited to be here with you guys and get to play with you.
1: Oh, we are too. I can't tell you when we when we had you, you were number one on our list. Of people, and we're glad we could match you with this tension of presence. And you have a great story coming
2: up, and I can't wait. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, this, this tensions of presence is really near and dear to my heart because we're looking at going from competition to collaboration. And I've had my coaching business for 30 years now. And in the beginning, I worked predominantly with lawyers and it, lawyers in America are probably the most competitive. I mean, next to professional athletes, right? So it, they breathe competition. And the story I'm going to share with you is about the business driven necessity for lawyers at one of America's oldest corporations to actually become collaborative. And this happened back in the mid-90s. In the early 1990s, the chairman of the board of DuPont, the chemical company, challenged the company to cut a billion dollars, billion with a B, in operating costs. They wanted to cut a billion in operating costs. Hard to get our brains around that, those of us that are small businesses, but- At the time, I was coaching leaders in the law department there, and the law department was committed to doing their part to contribute to this billion-dollar challenge, and they realized when they started looking at the practice of law inside this corporation that they were going to have to change their thinking, just to set a little context. Kind of the way in the past DuPont had operated was kind of at a steady, predictable pace in a contained marketplace. And what they found in the early to mid-1990s is that they had to create some really profound transformational paradigm shifts because they had to deal with suddenly this fast-paced, interconnected global economy that was rapidly increasing their legal costs. So let me give you some numbers to make this a little more real. So at the time when they started evaluating and assessing how they were doing the practice of law and what would need to change and what change might look like, they had over 6,000 legal cases on their docket. So 6,000 lawsuits. And they were spending in that that year that they looked at it, $97 million on lawsuits. And the cycle time of these lawsuits from filing to resolution was taking them about 40 months, 39 to 40 months. So it was a long cycle time. And they had they had been working with, in addition to their internal law department, they had over 350 external law firms providing legal services <laughs> to them. And what they realized <laughs> when they looked at all of this was, they they really couldn't afford as a company to be working with and paying 300 law firms and something had to change if they were going to cut costs so the they start they did this analysis and they looked at the fact that 90% of their cases were settling however 80% of their litigation costs were spent in the discovery phase so For those of you like me who are not lawyers, the discovery phase is all of the data sharing, all of the document sharing, all of the research, all of the, you know, you give us everything you have, we'll give you everything we have, and we got to learn each other's stuff before we can go to court. So that's the discovery phase. So if they were spending 80% of their litigation costs, 80% of this $97 million was being spent in discovery, they started to analyze, well, what, where? Why? (laughs) Why? (laughs) Right? That's yes, that's the way we've all done it. But what are the underlying beliefs and principles and values that got us here? Exactly. Was there something, Janet, you wanted to
0: No, exactly. That's exactly I mean, Mm -hmm. that's the heart of it, right? Don't don't keep doing the same old thing.
2: Yeah, and they discovered a number of things actually. But one of the main discoveries in that was that instead of being focused on the practice of law and trying to be super thorough in analyzing and researching all this discovery material and trying to avoid risk and trying to win each case as if it were a bet the company kind of a case, they realized maybe we can be more strategic here and maybe we can step back and look at it from a more global perspective. And maybe there's other ways to think about this that will help us to reduce the outside law spend because we're not necessarily focusing on the whole in terms of the practice of law for dupont we are focused on winning each case at all costs and that's costing us time money etc so how do we get from the competition to collaboration so here's here's what they did they they created something called the dupont legal model and i mean if you google it today there's still tons of stuff about it because it was completely transformational in the field of law at the time. This DuPont legal model basically turned uh, turned the practice of law on its head. And instead of it being just a corporate law department that works with over 300 external law firms, they started to say, okay, what if we create something in the spirit of partnership? What would that look like? What if we reduced our number of outside law firms but did it with specific criteria and made it like a competition where the outside law firms had to get aligned with us in our thinking and in our values, and they had to put their money where their mouth is in order to play with us and get to be our law firms. And would that work? Would they be willing to do that? So this convergence, they called it convergence, this convergence process took about a year. And what they ended up doing was coming together with like 34 different primary law firms, they called them primary law firms. And what was really fun as a coach in this was to get to see that the primary law firms, you know, they had for each one, they had like an engagement partner for each of these 34 primary law firms that were selected. And they all had to be aligned around certain core principles. Like they wanted, DuPont said, we want these primary law firms to to value diversity more. We want we want to increase the hiring of diverse legal staff to represent our cases. We want to retain and have more contributions from women and underrepresented groups, and that's going to be important to us. So if you're just giving us the same old white men on every case, we're not going to be counting you as one of our primary law firms. And this created a scramble in the law firm side of house, side <laughs> of, of the course. house. Because the law firms realized, hey, we haven't been hiring for this. We've been hiring people who remind us of our most successful partners. So we've got a lot of old white dudes and maybe some white women who kind of remind us of our, our sisters and mothers, right? So this was a big aha on the law firm side, which as a coach, you get to hear these kinds of things, which was really kind of the fun part for me was was being, being able to witness all of this transformation unfolding as they thought through it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were these were the elements. They had to have diverse staffing. They had to embrace technology. The law firms that served with DuPont had to embrace technology because they were going to create a wide area network that everybody was linked on, that DuPont and the law firms that were in this primary law firm group were all linked together through technology using the same technology. So the law firms were going to have to spend money to do that which was unheard of at the time. You know, this was not a marketing budget. This is not taking your client to a ball game to get the business. This is now you have to transform how you practice law to work with this client. Strategic partnering was based on mutual trust. It was based on sharing the risk and reward, collaborating in service of the client. This was a stated objective, right? You competitive lawyers will collaborate on our behalf. Really bold for a corporation to say that kind of thing and have to this was the piece that was really interesting to me everyone who who came into this dupont legal model had to commit to each other's financial success that means not just oh. the law firms committing to dupont's financial success not just dupont committing to the law firms financial success but these competitor law firms committing to each other's financial success Very interesting belief or philosophy that had to be implemented to be part of this convergence. The other piece was early case assessment. So really doing this kind of analysis of the case, like how thorough do we really need to be? Looking at alternative fees, doing value-based billing as opposed to just the hourly billing that they always do. Doing some strategic budgeting. But really shifting from being like an order taker legal provider to... A business focused, business driven case management partner with the client and with these other law firms. So let me pause there and see if there's questions on kind of what that
0: premise was, because there's a lot of moving parts in there. Well, and really a dramatic transformation in how they thought about the business and definitely competition and collaboration. But I'm curious, you know, as a coach, you have an insider's view, what were some of the beliefs that were coming up? Preferences, perhaps, maybe some biases that were prevalent in the senior partners who had to sign off on changing these criteria and be able to, you know, stand confidently to say, you will make this investment and it will be good for you. You'll like it.
1: <laughs> right. Resist, so, resistance.
0: Right. Well, what did they have to change in themselves in order to even pitch this to the partners at the outside law firm?
2: Yeah. I mean, the, the belief that Every case is worth taking to, you know, all the way through trying to get to settlement, but going in lawsuit to get to settlement. The the fact they had to, they had beliefs about that lawyers wouldn't want to collaborate because of their competitive nature. So they had to let go of that. They had beliefs that these outside law firms wouldn't want to spend money on technology. They were, there were, one of the habits was clearly the, you know, everybody looked the same. There was not much diversity representing mm-hmm. these cases. So it was really, it, it it was the kind of thing where it was bold in that it created a lot of grumbling on the part of these 300 law firms that had something to lose in not, you know, if they weren't willing to transform their entire law firm to work in this way with this one client. But there was also The ones that did come on board were able to shift to a belief that if this works for this client, this might give us an edge with other clients.
0: Wow! So it becomes an innovation by collaborating and not competing.
2: Exactly. Exactly. There was a quote in so there was a book that got produced here. I don't know if you guys can see this. Oh, that's fun. Legal model and New Year. This was produced in the. Oh, I don't know. I'm getting just right in front of you. There you go. Right there. (laughs)
3: <laughs>
2: yep. so it was it was produced in uh, 1999 so we started the legal model 1992 is when the chairman said cut a billion and that's when this kind of process began and then this whole book was put together with all of the the aspects of the legal model and one of the quotes in here is that competition and organizational changes go together Firms who are unable to implement major organizational changes will slip behind the competition and suffer. Embracing change will be a critical factor for success.
1: Yeah, so back to what, what really Janet was saying, fear, the leader's fear of change, not just resistance, but it's like, I, yeah, well, don't we all hear stories of fear, fears of change?
0: you know this was a this was a very interesting discussion i was having yesterday with a mastermind group about what is it that gets into the psyche of leaders that has them stay so attached to the status quo if the chairman hadn't said you need to cut a billion dollars or else if the leaders at dupont couldn't see you know what, we've got some habits like hiring people that look like us, a bunch of white guys that don't look like our customers. And a few more things that you mentioned here, if they hadn't paused to notice, they wouldn't have come up with a new strategy and they would have been the ones that would have been behind the curve. Right. That's exactly um, right. That is exactly right.
1: And, and I'd love to know who that was because mm-hmm. there's the statement drop a billion dollars. So he knew that would, probably wasn't him most likely him who was it that took that pause to say what if we transformed the whole business model
2: So I'll tell you who it was it was not even that it wasn't even the, uh, the head of the law department it was his second in command so the head of the law department was supportive of this of course but the the ideas came from a guy named Tom Sager who was the vice president at the time and and Tom brought in a really, a really transformational consulting, forward-thinking guy named Dan Luzak, who is no longer living, unfortunately. Um, And Dan Luzak is the, really the mastermind behind seeing all of these things. And as a coach, I, I came in as part of Dan's team and ended up coaching Tom directly for about 12 years. So it was It really was quite fun to have a front row seat to all of this as Tom's coach, to see his sort of growing awareness throughout this process. Because at first, when Dan started talking about these things with the folks at DuPont, there was quite a bit of resistance, as you can imagine. But Tom was really the first guy who got his brain around it, was able to run with it, was able to spearhead it, was able to connect the dots and get the resources lined up inside DuPont to really make some of this happen. And then there were Tom's team. Tom had a huge team of people that went and talked to, you know, had the conversations with all of these law firms and brought in the, the partners. and So
0: yeah. you said something really interesting there that Dan was able to connect the dots. And I think this is, coaches are in this position all the time where the need for the change gets revealed, right? That gets evoked in the awareness, but it's like, oh my God, now what do we do? Now what, right. Yeah. So how did Dan make it into a connect the dots to me is is a little bit like cause and effect. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is what's happening. It's causing this consequence. We want to do something different. It means we need to be different. What dots was he connecting for them that they could stomach collaboration?
2: So (laughs) lawyers and business leaders always think bottom line. So Dan was able to point to how these transformational changes were not just nice to haves, but directly connected to the bottom line, right? So it was hard originally for them to see, well, if I'm bringing on women and people of color who are going to be younger and less experienced, was the belief, right? How are they going to serve our cases? And by the way, don't we want to reduce our cases? So are we setting up these young women and minorities to fail, right? Like it was all these layers of what ifs and dan was able to cut through that he was really quite brilliant and he was able to cut through that in a way that connected the dots directly for them in their language about the business results and let me just jump to the results that got. i'm waiting at at (laughs) so so as a result of this dupont legal model the 6,000 cases on the docket got cut to 1,700 cases. So that's big. The $97 million that it was costing them to do this, in the, in the first three years, they saved $13 million and continued after that to save between $8 and $12 million per year. And at the 15-year mark of the program had saved, they could point directly to bottom line savings of $175 million. By doing this DuPont legal model stuff, the cycle time, if you recall it was like thirty nine to forty months right that got reduced down to twenty two months of cycle time and the the three hundred and fifty law firms became these thirty four primary law firms and some service providers in there as well and, and it really became we had we had annual and mid year meetings with all of the primary law firms and service providers and and the the key people at DuPont legal. And as a coach, it was so much fun to see this collaboration form. There was so much bonding that this group really was committed to all these same goals, aligned on all these values, in it for the same purposes. It really was an experience of the rising tide raises all ships and everybody was in it together. So it really was such a great feeling of team. And then there were some really creative spinoffs that happened as a result. Like there was a minority corporate council network that was created because all of these people who were coming into this world somewhat for the first time, right? In this corporate law world, they got to create their own connections in a in a network and then there was a dupont women lawyers network that got created so that the women could kind of create a parallel universe and what the the fun part about that was the women did things around marketing and business development in collaboration with their competitors that was so transformational in the field of law that they then got noticed by the bigger dupont network who said hey teach us how to do that you know (laughs) What, what is it you figured out over here that looks like a like collaboration on steroids what is that so yeah really fun to be
0: part of that experience so that you know you're really highlighting the tension competition doesn't go away right collaboration doesn't replace it they work in unison in a different ratio in different contexts but when we let them both coexist and we can start to think more creatively I mean to me this is a lesson in change that collaborative came up with Consistency around goal, values, and purpose, and then they opened up the gates and said, "What do we do?" Brilliant, just brilliant.
1: And and you know, and I, I want to say, hearing your story, I had the feeling that that Tom and Dan, whatever, there was that pause that Janet talks about.
3: Mm-hmm. There was
1: there was a moment where somebody took a breath. And something else entered into their mind, another possibility. Like it's 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 tangible in your story.
2: That actually happened every time Dan stood up in front of the room and talked. He <laughs> created pause just in his speaking. He he was one of these wow. forward thinkers that he would stand up and say something and you could just see, like you could Physically see minds change, right? You could see paradigms shift just <laughs> to people
0: listening. What did that guy just tell me? Yeah. 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 It was amazing. So I'd like to give the audience an opportunity to go around, go away and play a little bit and then come back and ask Susie some clarifying questions and share some comments if you like. And keep this simple with each other. Maybe you both get to go. You'll have about 10 minutes together. Please say your name and A way that's really easy to connect is what's a top personal or professional value for yourself. So take a moment to please do that. And then you might think about a thorny problem that you're facing right now. And work your way through at least the first of the three steps And then look at the second one and see if by saying it out loud and having it be witnessed, you realize, oh, my God, we have such a preference to doing blah, blah, blah. Right. That's the status quo side of things. Or maybe you recognize that some of the players have a certain bias. See if you can. Start to get your reflection muscle strengthened a bit when you're working together, just conversationally. And we'll put you into pairs. And so I know that my colleague, Aaron, is doing some magic in the background there. You'll get a join button here in just a second. And we'll close it at 10 minutes, which means you still have 60 seconds. Don't forget. <laughs> and we'll see you on the other side. Have some fun. Enjoy. There's
4: going to be one, I think one group of three. Yeah.
0: Great. Thank you, Erin. Yeah, here we go. Thank you. Well, welcome back, everyone. While you were working, Gary and Susie and I continued our conversation a little bit. And there are a couple of nuggets that Susie would like to share. And then the floor is open to comment about your experience in the breakout room or ask Susie a question to amplify something in the story. If you would, please go ahead and raise your hand because it'll help us cue to make sure that we anybody that wants to, you're you're certainly welcome to make a comment. And if you're shy and not feeling like you want to use your voice, feel free to put it in chat. All right, over to you, Susie.
2: Janet, I've already forgotten what was it.
0: (laughs) I was thinking about, you said to me, this was my first corporate assignment as a coach.
2: Oh, right, right. So it was, I was a very young coach. I was 24 years old when all of this was happening. It was my very first corporation and my very first corporate law department. And what ended up happening as a result of this work in my coaching business was that for the first then 10 years of my coaching business, the majority of my clients were all lawyers and I am not a lawyer. So Janet was saying, you know, as far as niche, for those of you who are coaches who are worried about, you know, choosing your niche, I did not choose that niche. I would not have chosen that niche or niche. (laughs) the French way to say it, but it chose me and ended up being really quite a lot of fun because they were so brilliant. And, you know, once I learned kind of how they think, and once I learned to be prepared to be in the deposition phase at the beginning of every (laughs) relationship, and then, then it ended up being great fun to work with them. But now I, I work predominantly with CEOs and scientists, oddly enough, but I don't think I have any, I have one lawyer now one lawyer
0: still and there's some Susie, Susie that actually Gary was hinting at in the bio but this was the other part of the story is telling the truth she walked into Tom's office and he put his glasses down his nose and she said I bet I know what you're thinking and then what did you say
2: yeah he he was looking at me over his bifocals and when I said I bet I know what you're thinking he kind of sat back in his chair and crossed his arms and and said oh really what am I thinking and I said you're thinking who the hell is this little girl and what is she doing in my office and he busted out laughing because that's exactly what he was thinking and that was the beginning of a relationship where I ended up working with him
0: as a coach for the next 12 years. Bull's <laughs> courage speak the truth is so always going to win the day so <laughs> thanks for modeling that Susie. All right, so questions. I don't see any hands raised. <coughs> I see a note here from Sarah. Thank you for sharing your about your NGO experience. Oh, that was too at Sarah from Renata. Wonderful. Oh, you guys are so nice with each other. I appreciate that very much. No questions or comments? Go ahead, Bruce.
4: Lisanne like has her hand up. Oh,
0: okay. Bruce, I and can't find my digital thank
4: you. It. I can't find my digital hand, so I'm seeing if this <laughs> one works. <laughs> Hello. I had a fascinating conversation in our breakout room. And I'm not sure if we were talking about what we were meant to, but my question that was I have a question that's pulling at my attention from the situation you described. And it had to do with how Dan was able to connect the dots. And was able to speak to leadership from the bottom line and i was wondering about the ethics of having a mandate to hire minorities and what we know about how minorities are not treated equally with pay and the goal was to reduce pay just how that Like, was that the language he was speaking to leadership to get the message through? And then I, I'm just calling myself out on my own bias. Like, is that, isn't that a terrible thing to say about people? But how do I balance this goal to reduce costs and mandate to hire minorities when we know what we know about how unequitable it is?
2: That's a great question. That actually was not part of the conversation at that time, not explicitly. That I heard. And what w- it was more the bias of there was a belief amongst the old school guys that they wouldn't be able to find talent with the same qualifications as who they were used to hiring. That was the bigger concern, which got proven wrong again and again and again. So, of course, as we know, right? So, if typically, just like in any field, um, at least my observation or my bias at this point is that if you're a person of color you've had to work twice or three times as hard to get half as far as every you know as, as these other people that are blocking your way and typically what we find is exceptional talent <laughs> when bringing in underrepresented minorities so the the cost that wasn't one of the connecting of the dots to directly answer your question lizanne and it's it was like, more looking at, it a, like. you know yeah. how do you get from Is It's the right thing to do versus how how does that translate into
0: business? Because the whole shift was about becoming more business-focused. It does seem to me, maybe, Susie, I'm reading too much into it, that the fact that they were able to hire diversity and those people who came in in those 34 final law firms were committed to collaboration, they actually increased revenue. It did just about saving the billion it was about actually up leveling the entire experience of dupont and i think that's a connect the dots that's super important
2: and up leveled the law firms as well because they realized that that was a blind spot that they hadn't been aware of and just i should specify this was not an exercise in getting rid of the white guys right like the (laughs) there were still plenty of old white guys around it was just bringing in more diversity yeah Beautiful. Uh, on
1: ahead. behalf of the old white guys, thank you.
3: <laughs> Go ahead, Bruce. Thank you. Hi, Janet. Hi, Sarah. I I was with Daritha, and we were able to pace ourselves and get through the entire thing. Tarifa oh, asked me a question at the end. We ran out of time. So how do you feel? And I thought that was an interesting question. And where that takes me is to this whole balance between curiosity and judgment. Because I can see how in some situations, and I was referencing an organization that I work with, not myself, it could create defensiveness. And yet there's something that's structured. that's kind of like appreciative inquiry, you know, the questions that kind of safe questions, the reflective questions. And I'm just curious, how do you deal with that balance of helping the client stay on the side of curiosity rather than judgment?
0: And how do you do it, Bruce? Ah! <laughs>
3: Oh God, she's my previous teacher. No wonder,
2: right? <laughs> she's,
0: she's
1: everybody's teacher, Bruce.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay, I can make something
3: up, right?
0: Well, it would I be better to drop it into it your own experience, right? Like, what do you do when you're faced with someone who's being judgmental?
3: Yeah, I think that it helps if the client is coming to coaching, experiencing pain, that there's something there that they've been unable to resolve themselves. And to be able to frame it as, well, you know, it sounds like you tried this, this, and this. What if we tried that? Or you tried that? Why don't we try this? It's just an experiment. That would be one way we'll approach it.
0: Yeah. Possibly a reframe. I want to hear from you. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I
1: hear also the opportunity for reflection,
0: mm-hmm.
1: mirroring back.
0: And they've come. Right, I think that's the thing to remember. Clients come. They come with something that's a dilemma. They're unable without the benefit of the dialogue between us. That's open and available for anything to emerge. Like you came here. What are you available to set on the bench for a moment? And in the pause moment, see what emerges. And give them back their autonomy. Yeah, building
2: on that, Janet, the reflective inquiry piece, I find just feeding their words back to them, either in a synopsis form or just as a reflection, allows them to keep going with that train of thought and hear themselves say the answer they came to you for.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Often, I don't say much of anything in a coaching conversation, and they get there themselves.
1: Silence is active. That's usually (laughs) what happens. The best coaching sessions ever is when I hardly say a thing. At the end, they go, oh, my gosh, you have such wonderful questions. I'm like, just listen to you go through your process.
0: And Miss Grace, you've patiently been waiting. Please jump in.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Janet, and thank you, Susie. That this case was a particularly interesting because this living up to aligning with the value of our diversity rewarded with a financial reward at the end. My question is, based on your relationship, long relationship with Tom, what if this plan didn't yield this immediate financial reward next year, or the next? What do you think how this case will, what what will happen? Well, the thing about lawyers <laughs> is that in addition to being extremely competitive and bright, they are, what I like to think of as the A plus students, right? So if they're given a challenge or a task, they want to get an A grade in doing it. So If the task was, we are going to do these elements of the DuPont legal model, and we are going to have that result in not only cost savings for our clients, but increases in revenue for our partnering law firms, they were all in and creating that result. It couldn't fail. So they didn't even consider the what if it fails because they're lawyers, they like to win. And the win in this case was not settling a lawsuit. It was achieving all of these objectives of the legal model.
0: You know, Susie, you're reminding me of most people are either afraid of success, afraid of failure, or afraid of mediocrity. And this is where can competition and collaboration, if you hold it as an either or, I'm either competitive or I'm collaborative, that's where we're standing. Fear of success, fear of failure, or fear of mediocr- mediocrity. And if we can hold both, right, let my competitive spirit keep seeking another answer, even when we hit a dead end, it's like, oh, that was a dead end. Let's back up three steps and turn left. That begins that process of collaboration. Trusting in both is really where the answer lies.
2: Yeah. So it ended up not being all rainbows and, and fireworks in terms of equality in in diverse representation so hence the creation that i mentioned before of these separate networks the the minority network as well as the women's network because they said okay we get the point and we see that you are trying to bring in more of us into your cases and we can be more collaborative with each other in service of that and feed recommendations if we have our own network going on over here so you know it's not that it 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 didn't fail it's just it, it didn't take off as quickly as people had hoped around specifically around the the diverse representation but then these other networks helped advance that ball and did some great collaborating along the way
0: I love Mona's comment here. If you all didn't see the Barola Brothers, that is a remarkable film. And it is with, absolutely. There's a question from Sarah for you, Susie. What was the impact on the average billables for those firms that were retained in the smaller group?
2: I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that that was reported. Let me see. I have kind of a summary of results here, but it's all from the DuPont side. I mean, obviously the primary law firms, the 34 law firms, stayed for the most part there were some that dropped out and other new ones that came in and ultimately i guess about a few years later it was a group of 40 primary law firms Mm. so it grew a little bit but but the ones that stayed obviously were achieving advances in their own revenues or they wouldn't they wouldn't wouldn't stay stay. right and and you can imagine just in serving dupont right if you've got 300 law firms who have a piece of the pie of six thousand cases that now gets whittled down to 1,700 cases that only 34 law firms have a piece of the pie. They're getting a bigger piece of the pie, even though the docket has
0: become smaller.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's what I was thinking. That's...
0: And Fred's comment, I think, is also something you were hinting to, Susie, this notion of the systemic context that Dan and Tom were able to speak to both internally at DuPont and externally with the partners that being able to set the picture big enough. You know, we think about this in one-on-one coaching for sure. Like if we can hold the bigger dream than the client can dream yet, they'll step into it. And and I think that's the difference between the the single-threaded problem that's brought and helping clients look systemically. You live inside of a system and that system lives inside of a system. What are all the influences? Even that simple question opens up the imagination and maybe yeah
2: and even expanding just the continually expanding dive into what's possible now right so we've achieved this now what's possible right it's and that's that ever expanding
0: systemic view exactly exactly well we have Susie's write-up for you Aaron will put that into the chat for you and also some contact information for Susie Susie, what would you like to leave them with as we are approaching the top of the hour here? What would you like to say to complete the story? Just that
2: it, because of this experience that I was honored to participate in, I really do hold the tensions of collaboration and competition as one and the same. They're two sides of the same coin. And I have that this as a lived experience of, of it, right? It's, it's one thing to have that as sort of a theoretical underpinning, but to see it in action in a, a corporation that's over 200 years old and really stayed in its ways of being was really revolutionary. So just that they do these, there doesn't need to be attention because they coexist and they're two sides of the same coin. Exactly.
0: And, and ultimately I think it, for me, definition of hope I heard recently is confident expectation. And I think that the when we can hear a story, Susie, like what you've brought, it reminds us that even when we're in the mess of something is not quite working out, pay attention because somewhere in that tension is a gold mine, a gold thread of answers. And it's staying with it and remembering it is possible. That's great.
2: Yeah. And I'll, I'll leave you with my, my favorite Dan Luzak quote. So Dan was the visionary i actually have this hanging on my bulletin board because i love it so much he he said life sure does throw us curveballs or maybe life is curveballs we keep expecting to be straight
1: good one
0: i think that's great and now a dan's last name is spelled l -L l-u-z-a-k luzak there we go. There you go, folks. It's in chat. If you want to copy and paste it, that is excellent. <laughs> All right, everybody. We have one more in the series this year. It will be on November 7th. We hope you will come back. It will be looking at control and agility. Hey. Ooh, thank you. Thanks for, having me.
1: thanks for being here, Susie. Thanks everyone for coming. Have a great weekend. Like I say, if you're Canadian, enjoy Thanksgiving. If you're not, eh, just give thanks somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and and, exactly. and think of your favorite canadian maybe it's me
0: <laughs> <laughs> bye everybody thank
3: you bye
0: thank you